Hey, what's going on? This is the Educated Guest Podcast. I'm Justin, your host, your host, your host, your host, your host. I'm your host. So this is another week, another great podcast. Today we have Kevin Bethune. Kevin is the true definition in my mind of what a polymath might look like in the modern age. The experience at Nike, BCG Digital Ventures, founder, co-founder, that is, Booz Digital Design Management Institute, and now Dreams Design and Life. Kevin's going to talk to us about how he made that career transition from nuclear power plant work, corporate financial planning for Nike, and into designing shoes for one of the most iconic brands ever, the Jordan brand. There's some hard decisions in that transition. It's not just, oh, I wake up one day and all of a sudden I'm a designer. Some tough, tough moments. And he's going to talk to us about how he got through that and how he's thriving now what you can do in your day-to-day if you feel stuck in your career to make that move. So tune in. You're going to love it. I follow a lot of uh, luminaries. Like uh, I, I follow John Maida, for example. In my mind, probably the consummate polymath. Uh, he's, he's actually, uh, I've had the great fortune of uh, bumping into him a few times over the last few years. So he's turned into a mentor that I, I greatly value his advice. I follow all of his readings. And uh, he started a, a blog, uh, I would say about a year and a half ago, called Design.blog, where it showcases a number of personal stories from folks that have lived on the fringes or between disciplines. Uh, he calls them edge dwellers, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I like to dive into you know other people's stories just to get inspiration. And and I think another book that I'm reading right now, trying to finish, is is it's it's been out for a while, but it's books. Mm. Um, just to you know build my my toolkit with additional mental rubrics of how to create products that will resonate with with consumers when you're reading nonfiction, how much of it do you retain and how much do you apply it directly to you know the next day the next month the next week because i read a ton of nonfiction, and i'm always like how much <laughs> i mean i'm pretty sure this information is going somewhere but yeah, I'm not just becoming a genius overnight. So, you know, where what is it? Where do you think it's being applied? You know, I, I guess I'm a I'm a believer in the the subconscious and conscious mind, and that consciously I might remember a couple of frameworks. Yeah, and I hope I can recall those frameworks when it matters. You know, no. maybe that next project. But but a lot of it, I think, I find over time, it gets absorbed in your sort of subconscious and. And the patterns emerge, and whether I remember the book where it came from or the speaker, I, I guess it does become part of your DNA as a as a creative professional. Mm. So walk me through and walk the audience through, if you can, just that the story of a young Kevin. I mean, obviously, background from Notre Dame, Carnegie Mellon, educationally cool, but talk me through your family upbringing because I feel like that as a person of color, I'm a young black guy, and I'm just like, okay, what? There's certain hurdles that we go through. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that question. Um, you know, my parents are from the South and you can imagine the generational traumas and challenges that they have had to overcome to come out of the South and, and try to provide a, a livelihood for their for their kids. So, you know, I, I grew up in a middle class home. I'm very hardworking parents. It just so happened that I think my my father's work took us into areas that, you know, were, were definitely no longer in the South. They had migrated up north. And we found ourselves in neighborhoods, middle class neighborhoods that were predominantly uh, white, you know, or, or, or other backgrounds other than uh, African-American. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, there, there's a fair amount of challenges as, as you can imagine, navigating school systems, navigating neighborhoods, uh, fighting stereotypes and those kind of things. And I think what was most concerning is, you know, as we're going through public school education, just the biases that were that were present, mm. you know, whether, whether even as a black you know, student, whether you knew or not that you were facing some type of unconscious or conscious bias, uh, that, that was the reality. But I, I, what I really appreciate, what I really appreciate my parents for is that they, they raised us with a, a knowledge of self, a knowledge of our identity, of where we came from. Mm. And despite whatever we were learning in school, they made it a point with whatever resources they had to ensure that they took us on trips to museums, to go see you know, extended family back down south, yeah. to, to go through the historical sort of stories and narratives and, and really appreciate where we came from and, uh, and, and appreciate what it took to get to where we were presently. And then like what, what dreams we could actually chase in the future. So I think they just, they raised us with a consciousness to, um, to seek against our curiosity, understand where we came from and, and to understand that anything was possible, no matter the, the obstacles. That's yeah, that's very powerful and, very personal moment here. I was fighting with my mom a couple months back about going back to a family reunion. I'm like, I don't feel like dealing with family reunion. Like I'm focused <laughs> on this. I'm like, I'm doing my thing over here. Da, 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 da. And I'm from Birmingham, Alabama originally and uh, live in Atlanta for the past eight years and stuff like that. So it's interesting that dynamic where you can never grow too old to where you're too big for home. Lo and behold, I ended up going to the family reunion. So <laughs> I think you can kind of understand how that goes. You try to fight those roots and over time you realize these roots are part of what make you different and yeah i think that's very powerful as you grow in your career and i grow in my career just keeping that in if you don't want me asking where is your family from in the south so my mom was raised for the most part um in the, the upper panhandle of florida yeah a Tallahassee, uh for most of her youth and my dad was uh um, raised on a on a farm tobacco farm in north carolina I understand. It sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. I mean, where there's what state you're in. I mean, it's a very similar story with uh, with our ancestors, if you will. And I, I want to like transition from young Kevin to I'm in my mid 20s. I'm hungry. I want it now because that's the mode I'm in. I'm 25 and I'm like, I want it right now. I want everything now. <laughs> like walk me through how you got through that. And, you know, obviously maybe it does, never goes away. I mean, you're always hungry for that next thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I would say as I was um, as I was starting my career and especially coming from my middle class upbringings, I think the sense of career was needed to find that stable, pragmatic job that would assure you an income. You know, after parents sacrificing for four years and taking on student loans, all these things, you're, yeah. you make sure there's a sure path at the other side of that. So and not, and not to get off target, but um I always carry this creative curiosity with me. I always drew for hobby, but I, I sort of buried that a bit. And I said, you know what? The pragmatic path that um, people are celebrating around me, whether it's the school systems, as I'm navigating college, my environment, the expectations my family have on me, it was either sort of engineering and business were the two paths that were in front. Because of my love for sciences as, a, as an intersect of technology and creativity, I thought engineering was perhaps the, the better choice of the two paths that was more true to me. So uh, I started my career in, in that vein, um, coming out of mechanical engineer, entered the nuclear industry. As you said, you know, early 20s, I'm hungry. I, I want it all. I want to attack. I think there was some, from my experience, I think there was something to be said for 
at least asking myself the question in terms of what I knew at the time at that early age, yeah. asking myself the question, how, how can I get into super demanding jobs, positions, um, departments in a, in a company? How can I make sure that I align myself to what was most critical for that company to succeed and, and do that as early in my career uh, rather than, than you know, find, trying to find that later? And so, um, and I, I think that was probably due to the, due to the, sorry, due to the encouragement of mentors that I had at the time to, to find those, those jobs that put me as close to the, the money-making engine of the company. Right. Uh, and the, those departments where there were a lot of eyeballs because the work was so critical. I found myself, and thankfully I was able to, to steer my path to that effect. And I found myself asking the, or sort of asking the question to myself of, you know, I, uh, this is not enough. I need more. I need more to yeah. like, I got to handle this. I got to step up to the plate because I, I positioned myself correctly mm. to the, to those learning experiences that would sort of give me that super injection of knowledge, learning, exposure, mentorship, and, and learn how to deal with real world situations. And, and the nuclear industry gave me that in, in spades. Um, I was able to work on projects that were well ahead of my years at the time. And not to say that those experiences satiated the appetite, if you know what I mean. Uh, what it what it did do was it, it created a, a a higher sense, a high quality sense of curiosity. That mm -hmm. it wasn't about like I want it now for the sake of um, I, you know I'm a college educated you know man and I expect these things. It was wow I you know I I've, I've gone through this now I realize that anything is possible truly. Mm -hmm. What, what do I need that to, to, to really further empower my career to do the things that I want to do in the future that I think I want to do, but at least get myself on a higher plateau? Did you feel like there was any paralysis by analysis given the amount of options you had after those experiences? So you're a nuclear engineer, college educated, on the precipice of greatness, if you will, and the world is your oyster, so to say. I find that you can be of two parts when addressing that situation. You can either say, the world is my oyster. Right? Yeah, I can do anything. Or it's like, the world is my oyster. Damn it, I can do anything. I don't know what the <laughs> hell I want to do. <laughs> That's great. It's a great question. I, I think as an engineer, the, the curiosity for business arose. That ultimately led me to pursue business school because I wanted to add that, that, that the business layer, that business acumen on top of my technical background. Mm. So now I'm in a situation where it wasn't just the company that may have liked me, you know, and they might have afforded me a lot of opportunities within that company. Now I'm, I'm, I was facing a situation where business school allowed me to sort of step back and look at my career more holistically. And as you said, now there's all kinds of options available. And, yeah, and the business yeah. degree would, with the engineering degree, it would, it would have you know, created a powerful combination. But as I navigated business school, there were so many voices and that, that feeling of like, what the hell do I do? You know, with all these voices saying, do it, you know, if I, if I want power and influence, do I go into investment banking? If I want, if I want to <laughs> yeah. have a seat at the table, do I go into management consulting? Because that's a sure path to the C-level suite. I mean, these are, these are notions and these are what my friends were talking about in the business school environment. And I found my creative inner voice, that inner child, yeah. the voice yeah. was dying a bit, it was dying a bit in the sea of, of all those voices. And so um, it, it was a hard time. I mean, it, talk about one of the most fortunate opportunities to go to business school and have a chance to reset and look at your career holistically. 
but to deal with this inner turmoil uh, was a reality for me. I find, yeah, and we talked about this before we sat down today about how intertwined our stories are. I mean, obviously, you've got some years on me, but at the same time, I look at your profile, and profile is just a profile, but you can start to fill in the gaps of, okay, I see from this to this to this to that. I have experienced that. I know what comes along with the fact that you know, in my particular situation, I started off wanting to be an architect and got into music production, made some cool songs for some big artists. And then when college hits, it's I think I started college right around the same time as uh, the economic downturn. So the housing market was all the way screwed up. And I'm like, maybe it's not a good time to be an architect right now. Maybe I should like do something else that makes money. And, uh, you know, you realize over time, I mean, that's been some years ago that you still come back to uh, I heard it described one time, I forget who it was. It was a rapper. I want to say Schoolboy Q, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't him. But long story short, he was like, yeah, like music for me is kind of like uh, kind of like an ex-girlfriend that I can never really get away from. I mean, you make an album, you drop an album, you go on tour, and you're like, ah, I'm tired of music. And then you say, I'm going to quit for a little while. And then two, three years from now, you're like, ah, I still love music. <laughs> so I find that that's just how art is for anybody that grew up you know, loving museums, loving architecture, loving whatever discipline it was. And that's that's what this podcast and this entire what I'm doing is all about. So it's beautiful to kind of hear that in in practice from your point of view. No, no doubt. Yeah, and I agree. There, there are definitely parallels. And, you know, the questions that you're asking, I, I can definitely remember grappling with them. I think when I was navigating that early entry into business, what I am thankful for during that time of anxiety a feeling that my inner child was lost. I, I think there was some something deep down inside. There was a conviction, a latent conviction, if you will, mm. that that said, you know what, like the schoolboy example, that in that inner child you can't ignore. Yeah. Some of my best mentors have encouraged me to just go back and remember in my in my mind's eye, like who was that young Kevin? What drove him? What motivated him? What kinds of things did you see that excited my heart, and my mind, and my passion? Um, and to start actually experimenting with that conviction. Mm. And so it was, what, was, what was cool was in business school, I went and bought some creative software when that wasn't required for any of my classes. <laughs> but I said, you know what, I'm, I'm in a school environment again. I can reset. I can I can explore on the side yeah. like this is about and, and, and cut my teeth a little bit more. And I found myself doing um, little side hustles. Like I would do student logos for some of the clubs in the business school. Oh, yeah. I would, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And I think those little experiments, they ended up, they ended up accumulating, they ended up mattering because when it came time to pick a, a potential employer come graduation, I said, you know what, I, I could go to an engineering firm and play to the comfort zone, or I could listen to my friends and go down these different paths, yeah. but it, it wouldn't resonate with my core. But this creative exploration, can I use it to inform the shortlist of companies that I think, you know what, I could see myself being curious in their environments, not knowing what I would do with creativity. And maybe I can leverage my, my business and technology. Um, but let me find that short list of companies that embody a creative environment. And thankfully, one of those companies bit back and allowed me in, an opportunity to, to, to work for them. That was Nike. Yeah. Back to the kind of what you view from people on paper and to look at your story on paper, some might argue that the launching pad was Nike to where you are now. And I think it would be beneficial to me and then the audience as well just kind of hear what that what that was like i mean you can read all the articles and stuff but hear from the horse's mouth is is a different is a different ball game 
moonlighting yeah. and waking up at 5 a.m. to come draw in the mornings. And then like, what is that? What is that like? man? Coming into Nike, uh, it, it's a very interesting culture. It's very competitive. If you're not born at Nike at the early part of your career, it, it, it's, it's not a culture that's really, I would say, friendly to people that had done stuff before coming into Nike. Yeah. So there were all kinds of just cultural norms I had to learn and understand to navigate that place. Mm. And mind you, I'm coming in a, in an MBA capacity. So they, you know, I had a business planning role as my first job. <laughs> and again, I, I'm, I'm super grateful for the experience because it taught me, really taught me and solidified the language of business especially in a publicly traded setting as Nike. Um, but that product person, that creative inner child was trying to figure out where's the, where's the cool stuff happening. Yeah. So um, Nike being the coffee culture, the networking culture that it is, it got me addicted to coffee. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I love coffee, man. I try to keep it to one or two cups a day, but you know, I'm trying to get to your level. <laughs> That's the thing. I was like, man, I feel like an addict. I got one or two cups a day. And then I'm like, I hear people yeah, I'm like 10 or 11 cups a day. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> but apologies if yeah. you drink 10, 11 cups a day. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you know, but navigating the the Nike culture and the environment, you know, one coffee chat would lead to two coffee chats. And, you know, you would just sort of branch out across the organization learning. Yeah. And, you know, a couple, a couple of networking conversations like that a week, you start to learn a lot about, what's happening in the, the broader Nike engine. Mm. And I think over, over time, some of those coffee chats turned into actual invitations to help out certain teams. When I started getting serious about potentially go, you know, going to help and do a little side hustle with this team, I was actually discouraged from doing it at first. I mean, one, one, one department was like, well, I don't know how it would look, you being over there with the product folks, uh, you yeah. know, under the banner of, of our department. Like, how does that look? I, I would say, no, don't do that. Thankfully, though, um, some wise advocates basically said, you know what, you're not accountable to anyone for your lunch hour. Uh, instead of going to work out, you know, where most people would go run for a couple hours, yeah. why don't you work out your brain with us? And so thankfully got uh, some inroads with, you know, the, the, the Nike innovation groups. Um, and it was Jordan brand, actually, that was the first category that gave me an invitation. Like, we have a couple briefs without a home, not enough designers. <laughs> We'll mentor you through these if, you, if you're willing to do the work. And mm -hmm. thankfully, um, it, it was those stretch assignments that made the difference. It, it was, again, experimenting against that creative curiosity. Did it ever cross your mind that there's probably thousands and thousands of designers out there who would have loved, loved, loved at, that opportunity to simply say, hey, we have empty design briefs for the Jordan brand. You know, what, <laughs> I'm sure it crossed your mind, but how do you just put that in the back of your mind and say, yeah, hey, like, yeah, sure. Somebody else may have been more prepared. They may have been drawing sneakers, da, 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 da. But I have my own form of preparation to lead me up to this point. So now that I'm at the table, I'm going to kick ass at this. And I'm sorry that someone else wasn't here. You know, I, I'm sure there's a bit of a, uh, you know, guilt or even imposter syndrome there with that situation. Like, what is that? Yeah, no, it was real. Um, I think I was very scared to walk over to that department. At the time, uh, Dwayne Edwards, he was the footwear design director who, you know, I networked with and he saw the, the raw stuff I did for hobby and thought, you know, you have some raw skill. Yeah. He didn't say, oh, I'm there. You got a little bit, you got a little bit of something. <laughs> right. So it's like, but if, you, if you meet me in the mornings, you know, we can, we can go on this journey together. I think the, in, the intimidation of what, like, wow, Dwayne is giving me a shot. Jordan Brand is giving me a shot here that most people would dream of. 
I can't drop this ball. I just, I just can't. And I'm sure I felt like an imposter syndrome of, you know, stepping over to that team, then looking at me, they, a lot of them knew like my, my day job, <laughs> they knew I was this planning person or this operations person. I was the numbers guy just by the sheer fact that my title was what it was. Right. But I think what got me through that anxiety was just listening to Dwayne, taking the mentorship, being showing gratitude by the exposure he was giving me by really addressing the work opportunity. So when he gave me an assignment, we would go do our day jobs, but at night I would, you know, hustle and, and scrape together and buy my own resources and design however many iterations uh, that were expected and then some, yeah. and then show the next morning with output, like credible output. And I, I think it, like the, the anxiety only increased as I had to not just engage Dwayne, he started inviting me into the actual Jordan team you know, design review meetings and imagine walking into this, <laughs> this celebrated culture, this high performing team that put, puts out incredible product and putting my, my sketches on the table. There you go. Like, check this out. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is, it's, yeah, I saw sure. you. I mean, the reason I even found out about your story was through Dwayne and pencil. Mm-hmm. So is it safe to say that you were the first pencil student was, or was it just prior to, on the timeline, walk me through how that kind of evolved and how you stayed connected with Dwayne. It was funny. It was a it was a, a Carnegie Mellon alum introduced me to Dwayne. Yeah. You know, um, and upon just having that that short conversation, and I guess experimenting by showing Dwayne like my side hustle drawings, my little doodles. I wouldn't call them drawings. My doodles. <laughs> right. Uh, for him to to give me that that shot. Um, but I think Dwayne at the time was also experimenting with the future soul competition inside of Nike. You remember that where Carmelo Anthony was the signature athlete. Yeah. The winning high school student would, um, you know, have their shoes made and put in Foot Locker, I think it was, or at Nike Town. I, I do remember this. Yeah. Yeah. So Dwayne was experimenting on his curiosity. I mean, Dwayne has probably more than a billion in footwear sales. Right. You know, to his design credits. And so he had delivered so much for the industry He's mentored so many people. So I think his concern and a curiosity around outreach became front and center for him during Future Soul. Mm. And at some point he said, you know what? I, I remember him telling me this. I want to prioritize helping others get into this industry rather than just continuing to make revenue for these brands. And he, he tried to, I think, create outreach opportunities within, within Nike. But then when he felt like that wasn't enough, you know, his bold conviction said, you know what? I think I can experiment creating a school. It's funny, after five years at Nike, working double duty, doing my day job and doing these nighttime side hustles, right. I ended up uh, facing a, a, a big fork in the road. Either I continue to claw and scratch at Nike or I go back to school and really solidify that creative leg of the stool. Led me to uh, Art Center College of Design for two more years of graduate studies. But the fun, fun thing was, in parallel, Dwayne was developing Pencil he smartly started to partner with the world's best design institutions and basically said, Art Center, why don't you send a group of students to me for a couple of weeks in between the semesters and I'll give them this boot camp internship and just beat them up to a pulp to teach them the industry. And so I ended up becoming uh, one of Dwayne's pupils again through <laughs> Art, Art Center's pencil. So I was in the inaugural Art Center pencil class. Oh man, that's, see, that's awesome. That's awesome to reconnect. And it's probably equally uh humbling if you will that i already trained with him now i'm at school and then i'm back with him and he's still kicking my ass again like come on man we're supposed to haven't we been through this before like 
it, he made it very clear. I'm not giving you any breaks. <laughs> it's the same school. Let's go. <laughs> Interesting. So to the topic of credentials, I mean, I was reading one of your articles about picking the lock on the industry. And I love that metaphor because I find that you know it's not so much kicking down the door. At least that's not particularly my style, but I feel like I have been picking the locks thus far in my career where you, know, you find a way, you find a way. And sometimes the way is having the credential and sometimes the way is showing the work. And I think in this generation, i.e. my contemporaries, mm-hmm. we struggle with that. We struggle with rising cost of formal ed- education, the rising cost of, of debt and what it actually takes to do the work that you see being made where, hey, like I can I can sketch a shoe. I can drop ship it and I can drop ship a clothing line, set up Shopify and all this other crap and not even crap, but like viable mm-hmm. business model generation. How do you, you know, how do you define credentials at this point? What are the important credentials to have? And you know, obviously times have changed a little bit, but I'm sure the decision is still the same. Yeah, you know, we're we live in an unprecedented time. Right. You know, all this connectivity around with all these open source tools. So there's a lot we a lot more we can do today than we did we're able to do 10 years ago, which is which is nice. I think there's still um, a need to respect the different modes of learning. You know, there, there's many ways that you can sort of go about it. And I think ultimately it takes grit to, as you said, you're gonna you might have a barrier around maybe college is now so un- <laughs> so unaffordable or unsustainable to kind of navigate that journey for right. some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's other ways to go find knowledge. There's other ways to be scrappy and, and side projects, uh, being mentored by great practitioners, whatever it is, you got to figure out a way. I think ultimately the grit to survive that, to overcome that and start doing things, when you start doing, you ultimately create evidence. Mm-hmm. And evidence informs your, um, your confidence and your your credibility, and so my evidence it, it's not a one and done thing. I think sometimes folks, if they feel like they they've achieved a project, they feel okay, I've got it, I've nailed my certification, I'm I am now positioning myself on my resume, on my LinkedIn, that I can do these certain things. Hmm. Unfortunately, that mindset will leave folks vulnerable because ultimately the market doesn't care. The market wants to see. You know, a strong track record and know that you can deliver, that I, that I can trust you to hang your hat on a capability that you claim. In order for that to, to work, I think it takes many hours, many cycles. I mean, you might have heard the 10,000 hour principle yeah. before you can really claim any capability where you, you flex that muscle many different ways from Sunday over and over again. And you've adapted and evolved it and, and made it better so that it you you are stepping into the market with a resilient capability. I think that's very important for mm. uh, young folks to you know respect. While the temptation is there to to want to like go, go about some things and put them, some things together and make things work, that's great. Please do that. Right. But you don't want to feed into your imposter syndrome by not having enough confidence and credibility that you can stand on in your own right. You got to believe in yourself. And if you're feeling exposed, the market's going to definitely expose you. Mm. That I love that. And it begs a question of what you think about the gig economy right now, because there's this rise in freelance work, the rise of specifically for the creative field where, you know, if you can code, you can do graphic design, or if you can do digital marketing, you can pretty much find a gig somewhere. Yeah. And it almost begs the question of, hey, like, what's the value in 
understanding like some of the stuff you might have learned in B school or understanding some of the stuff you might have learned at BCG where at scale, mm-hmm. you know, what skills and what credentials become important? Is it still the skill itself, like the ability to get the kerning just right on that on that typeface? Or is it does it become now the ability to galvanize groups of people and lead and and develop a, a vision for where you're trying to take the team? Like at what point is there that handoff from gig to actual know-how or intuition yeah because I, I guess from your question i sense that you know you ultimately want to see that person or that person may want to find themselves in a position of influence right, right. to make an impact mm-hmm. versus versus just a transactional gig i mean i think we will see you know a continuing rise in freelance and because of of how digital has transformed our abilities i mean you look at a, a firm like automatic the, the the open source firm behind platforms like wordpress yeah i mean they, they celebrate their distributed nature and then you know the, the rise of, of freelance um options that we have to find talent of any sort for any type of project that we want to do like that's all in our hands now which is incredible the the channels of influence are still um rather limited and by channels of influence if you peel back the layer of most c-level uh leadership teams of most organizations yeah you know, they, they come from certain types of experiences. I, I think, you know, certain disciplines, I, albeit business, engineering, design, what have you, yeah. have commanded more influence over recent history than, than other disciplines. But what you're seeing is that the, perhaps the non-business disciplines are now earning seats at the table. Mm. Now that's created a, a heightening, you know, demand and opportunity for, you know, your, your perhaps non-business folks to learn how to garner influence when the business folks have enjoyed that for the longest time. If, if I'm, let's say, a, a, a CXO, a CEO of a, of a large corporation, in the past, I may have leaned on a management consulting firm, a group of strategists to help wayfind me through the volatile market. Yeah. But I think what we're finding in a hyper-connected world, that change is now exponential. It's no longer linear. And disruption is happening all around us. And so I think the value of those creative faculties of problem solving, of intuition, of, of abductive reasoning versus just the hypothesis-driven reasoning that came from the business side, these, 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 these skill sets are becoming more and more valued and appreciated. We're still in the infancy with that, but it's, I, I predict in the future, that's where um, the economy will reward those folks that have those those capabilities and that, that intuition. And so it's just something to think about as you move forward to say, how can I practice garnering more influence with my differentiated capabilities? That's a, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. And cause I find myself and uh, even some peers of mine, just wondering some days, like, am I thinking big enough? It's quick to want to look at an Instagram or look at the next guy who seems to be around the same age as you and say, damn, all I need to do is get to, 50,000 followers or 100,000 followers on Instagram and I'll be set. Like I'll run my graphic design agency. It'll be big. I'll make 50, 60 grand. I'll be living cool and damn, mm. I'll be making it. And then I'll take some pictures next to a Lambo that's not mine and then I'll, I'll be good. <laughs> I think you see this happening and I, I really want that not to be the case because I guess I've been fortunate enough and diligent enough to kind of explore my career path thus far as short as as it is even but my background in consulting is like okay 
I know this isn't necessarily how it's going to work 20 years from now, but I can see that some of the same principles will apply that mm-hmm. the skill isn't the only thing that matters. It's important, but influence and leadership and some of these kind of amorphous concepts still will hold true as we move forward. I think as professionals, we, we have to remain somewhat paranoid and I hate to use that word paranoid, but things that we've learned, some of those things will, will, will stand the test of time. They'll prove to be valid 20 years from now. And we can we can codify those things as part of our sort of our, our creative foundation, our, our our professional toolkit. Like we can bake in the fact that you need to do a SWOT analysis on said company navigating this you know competitive landscape. Like we we know that to be a, a, a true reality. But there's other things that we can do on top of that known rubric, yeah. right? And that we have to be open to. And so there's something to be said for you know having the discipline to codify the concretes, the things that you know are going to stand the test of time. Uh, but always be, being open to know that no idea is born in one place. No one organization, individual, or entity has it fully figured out. And disruption and the, the impact that technology has in shaping the art of the possible will have to force us to keep ourselves open and, and ideally open source about how we continually feed our, our professional set of tools. And you're going to keep building on top of your pyramid until ultimately you're walking in, hopefully, a path that defines your purpose in this life. Mm. I've got a couple more questions, and I think we're right 30, about the 40-minute mark, but a couple more questions and we'll wrap. But I want to get a little tactical here to kind of paint a scenario for that 20, 22, 23-year-old person that, I, let's say I run uh, live events for someone and I want to set up a brand experience for somebody's clothing line, which is a pretty common request these days where it's like, hey, I've got these t-shirts I'm designed, da, 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 I need somebody to help me set up a brand experience. And yeah. I think people with the clothing line, naturally with you know the taste level they might have is they see stuff like pop-up shops in, in New York for like Cadillac and Lexus and these huge, br- Samsung, you see this like where they're now setting up these brand experiences yeah. And people want to recreate that, but I've only got like a thousand dollars max to do something like that. <laughs> and yeah. it's just frustrating as someone who's personally done, tried to do this and done iterations of it. It's frustrating when you're like, I've only got a thousand bucks, if that, mm-hmm. and my taste level is here, but my pocket level is here. So what, what would you recommend? It's one thing to get in the door with a brand. Like let's say if you were, if you're freelancing for a, a small brand that was just getting off its feet and knew yourself. Our team of maybe five people just trying to address this opportunity that just landed in your lap and your budget only gives you a thousand dollars to go to go buy those materials to get to get going um so I, th- I think you know the first thing that comes to mind is just thinking bigger beyond just the ask and and really sort of empathize with with the brand that hired you to say like what what are they really trying to do yeah and there's there yeah. ways that we can sort of Put our minds together to make the most out of this opportunity and it might be like you like you mentioned you only have a thousand dollars perhaps but what's cool in today's world is that there's so many cool ingredients that you can work with to infuse space content you know brand aesthetic the product the community that comes to the pop-up you know with 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 projection with some foam pour with some plywood and nails there's a lot you can do i mean a glue gun you can you can create a world Mm. Uh, inside inside of a space, you know, you can get on SparkFun uh, or go to Radio Shack and buy a lot of open source components that 
you know, connect together to create even an interactive experience. Yeah. You know, maybe you can afford to, you know, introduce VR and AR into the experience in some way where, where you're creating uh, a new and novel experience. Because ultimately, all these ingredients are um, enriching our ability to tell a story. And, and, the, and now the ingredients are getting to a level where they're so inexpensive. It's more about putting the calories into how can I tell the best story possible to convey the point. When's the right time to bring on those extra three, four or five team members if I'm running that small moonlighting shop? Because I think that's a there's a bit of entrepreneurship there where it's like, oh, yeah, I need to have a team. I need to have so and so, so and so working for me. I got so and so handle that. And there's there is that mentality. And it's very I think everybody has a little bit of that inside of them. And there's yeah. definitely the other part that's now nah, I need to do it all myself. <laughs> so where, where is the middle ground man? Where, where we need to be? It's funny. I, you know, I'm personally grappling with this very question. I, I left uh, a big opportunity in, in BCG Digital Ventures uh, to start my own shop. Honestly, there is that temptation to want to go hire the, the founding team beyond just me to lease an office space to, to show this presence to yeah. the marketplace. And it's like all my mentors who've done it advised me to do everything the opposite of that. <laughs> so... So, you know, I'm running very lean. You know, I think there's something to be said for ensuring that your DNA as a founder of, of said agency is infused in the work that you do, that you feel like that initial foray, those cycles of work and satisfying clients reflects your DNA, your values, your ethos. And it's going to take some cycles to get that right. And ideally, you can, in this connected world, find the freelance talent that you can sort of piece together. And I think through that, that experience, you're going to solidify relations. You're going to solidify relationships with those freelancers that are um, that are up to the challenge, that consistently deliver and match your values. And I think the the nature of the project work, the types of projects that you have, will reinforce or even teach you where you're getting it right or wrong in terms of your value prop. After after some level of steady state, you know, success, you could say, you know what? Now the evidence says it's a smart bet to go higher this UX UI designer or this motion designer or uh, whatever it might be. That's one thing we haven't talked about yet. We talked a lot about the past, but we haven't talked much about your future. And I figure this is a good way to wrap the show just to tell us more about what you have planned for the current company and what you have on the rise and what you're excited about, what you're nervous about. Yeah. Everything in between. You know, probably, probably a lot of nerves being great right now as a, yeah. as a new entrepreneur, but you know, my company is named Dreams Design and Life, and it's a design and innovation firm that I, I, I hope will serve, you know, like-minded brands in a very compelling way and, and deliver impact in the marketplace. Uh, but also, you know, my intent is to incubate products as well but against frictions that I see in the market that I want to solve with my company. And so I'm looking at it as a platform ultimately that will tie in, you know, monetization opportunities, content, and, and community. I think what convictions led to the creation of this company was the fact that with the advent of digital, there's this mindset to want to just throw mud at the wall and, and get things out super fast and get that app in the app store and all these things. And what I would say there's not enough conversation of is where are we headed? Like, what is the, what is the future? And I'm not just talking about the next one to three years, but over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years, how are we, how are we unlocking and enriching human potential? Mm and really enriching people's lives. And I'm sorry, you know, I have a, I have a, you know, an eight year old son, soon to be nine, and I don't want him staring in these rectangles all day. Yeah. 
I, I'm hyper conscious of that, especially with, with his arrival as my, as my one and only son. I want to have him enjoy a future that, you know, has, has technology working for him, not pushing its agenda on him and, and shaping him into something that's not meeting his potential. So I think, I think the mixture of physical and digital is, is exciting to me. And oftentimes I'm tired of the conversations that I have with friends in Silicon Valley that highlight that product is hard. Physical product is hard. Hardware is hard. Well, of course it is. If you're if you're thoughtful to wanting to achieve something, it's going to be hard, but you still do it anyway. Right. And I, most of my career was in physical product creation, so I don't I don't bat an eye at how difficult it is. It might be unsavory for an investor to invest in the, the project with me, but you know what? I'll figure out a way. The grit, the perseverance. I don't need that money. That money is poor quality to me. If you're not seeing the vision that I have uh, moving forward. And I think people deserve these seamless intertwined experiences where mm. physical smart things can talk to the cloud, talk to each other, talk to us and work for us on our behalf. It reminds me, it reminds me of this book that I'm reading. I just finished actually, it's called a more beautiful question and it's a different spin on the design thinking method. I mean, it's kind of been beaten into our head, the design thinking method to the point where it's almost mm-hmm. now that textbook definition that now all the business people who didn't know what design was can now know what design is. And then it's, it's kind of over there and it's on the shelf. But I find that New York Times bestseller, huge book. I didn't know it when I picked it up, but he uses this model of why, what if, and how to kind of spark mm-hmm. innovation. And he goes through all these anecdotes of how different huge companies have used that model to say, and he's, I've been on a roll with telling all my friends about this. So it's just top of mind of, he said that knowledge is a commodity nowadays. Like simply knowing is a, is a commodity. And he's like, yeah, I mean, we're not sticking with questions long enough. We're not sticking with a problem long enough. And he used the example to say that even with the this huge trough of information that we have that is Google, mm-hmm. the most commonly quest- asked question on a certain day that he said was, which celebrity in Los Angeles is gay? And that's like the most commonly asked question. And it, it sounds sounds about right because nine times out of ten, I'm Googling like, what is this sound in my car and <laughs> how much is it going to cost for this part? Like, you know, you know, more answers aren't necessarily the answer. And I find that to be kind of right on point with what you're trying to do and what you are doing right now. Yeah, it's like we, we, we've got to get over this, um, this short term mindset of, of thinking that um, we can just satiate our questions so quickly or or if we follow and I, and I when i say this what I'm, what I'm about to say i mean no disrespect to the early pioneers of design thinking yeah. or even you know the late the, the great firms that have really got design thinking on the map like your ideos and frogs of the world but i think to your point it's turned into a prescriptive sort of dance where folks now feel if i five if i follow a five-day sprint or or a six-week sprint or a 12-week i'm going to magically get this innovation outcome and I'm going to churn a lot of content. I'm going to churn a lot of ideas. I'm not going to give thoughtfulness to any one of those ideas because I'm just trying to sprint to the end and have a bunch of stuff on the wall. Yeah. And I think that, again, that goes back to the behavior of just throwing mud on the wall for the sake of it and thinking that it's magically going to produce a, the new and novel spark. Mm. What we know from the marketplace, there's a lot of competitive stuff, a lot of stuff that we don't need, a lot of junk. And to, to really have a brand present something that's new and novel, it takes the deep work. I mean, I think the brands that celebrate this the most and do this the most 
you know, I think I think that as a part of their DNA, whether their leadership championed it or as part of their organizational makeup, but they've made the smart bets in themselves and their capabilities, not just years ago, but in some cases decades ago. Mm. You know, the, I think the reason why we're able to hold some of these things and the ones that perform the best is because someone had the the appetite to invest in the potential 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. And we're, we're able to enjoy these things now. So, you know, that's the hope that I can I can shine a light on those opportunities for the brands I engage as well as the things that I work on myself uh, to say, you know what, there's the long game too that we can't lose sight of. And that the long game can help inform the short bets that we make. Those, those minimum viable products that need to be released in the next six months to a year, they'll be better contextualized and, and point us to a, a brighter future if we have both the long game and the short game in mind. I, I've only got one more question and it's slightly related, but not. It's the same one I always ask everyone is what would you say to the 17 year old version of yourself? Uh, awesome question. I would tell my younger self to be even more courageous to experiment and try things. There were probably, you know, early career chapters uh, or situations where I was navigating a, a question or a fork in the road where I probably may have played things safe. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I'm sitting here super grateful for the, the mentorship, the exposure, the experiences that I've had. And I think it's informed a unique point of view that I'm offering to the market to allow others to benefit from my learnings. Yeah. Um, as much as I continue to learn from others too, like you know, your John Maidas, yourself. I mean, we're, we're a tribe, right? We're a tribe. And I want to be a part of a, a tribe that is curious, that's not afraid to live on the edges. And what I would say to my younger self is to, do more of that <laughs> earlier and often than playing it safe. Hey, I love it. I think we're going to wrap right there. Any other things that you would want people to know about you, your brand, what you have coming up? I always like to leave this opportunity for that. I think compared to the, the experiences that I was a part of before, I was part of giant platforms, platforms that served all kinds of industries, all kinds of things. So this company for me, Dreams Design and Life, allows me and, and my early team to steer our calories back to perhaps those select industries, those niche areas that that we're passionate about, mm-hmm. that we see frictions that we're excited about solving. We want to create products and services to to address those needs. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely hoping to play more in the, the consumer electronics space, the smart things space, whether it be for the smart home or or uh, autonomous or mobility questions that are out there. Also, fashion tech excites me. You know, the, the notion of what can wearables be now that you have you know, technology embedding in our clothing and, and our accessories, like all the possibilities of how you could improve someone's lifestyle holistically really gets me going. There it is. Another episode, another week. This is all about helping people who are trying to make that decision of whether I should go back to art school. Oh, I'm a generalist. Where's my specialty? Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to, like, have to grow up anytime soon. And the beauty of it all that I'm learning and that I'm here to share from my experiences is that you don't have to ever grow up. You don't have to turn in your cool card to do what you want to do in this life. Kevin's a perfect testament to that. Being able to see both sides, being able to use both sides and engage both sides of the brain. That's what this life is about. So, yes, continue to be curious, continue to be aspirational, continue to think critically about what the future might look like and how you might play a part in building it. That's what this show, what this movement is all about. 
So if you dig what we're doing, tune in again next week. We're going to have some really, really big guests. It's growing, growing every time. Thank you to everyone who's been listening thus far at edu.guests. Follow it.